0: This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethantial. You're hearing the song Violin Tsunami, performed by Kaoru Ishibashi, who performs as Kishibashi. It's off his most recent album, Omoyari. He'll be performing in Norwalk tonight. We sat down with Kishibashi before his Connecticut performance to talk about his unique musical style and to find out what inspires him. Kishibashi is Japanese-American. In his most recent project, Omoyari, he focuses on a painful chapter in U.S. history during World War II, when more than 120,000 Japanese-Americans were incarcerated in camps as a response to fear of people of Japanese descent after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Kishibashi today reflects on what it was like to be Japanese-American during that time. He told me these experiences weren't on his mind growing up in Norfolk, Virginia, where there wasn't a large Japanese population.
1: Uh, I guess it kind of kept me isolated because I grew up not really knowing any real uh, like ethnic community. So I, I, I largely ignored it except for my direct connection through my parents.
0: Growing up, his parents were both academics teaching at Old Dominion University in
1: Norfolk. So I'm a professor's kid.
0: Does that mean they wanted you to be a professor?
1: Um, I think no, uh, but I did. I realized later in life that I have this uh, PhD envy uh, because my dad's Dr. Ishibashi and I'm (laughs) not.
0: (laughs) But you have a pretty cool stage name, Kishibashi.
1: Uh, Yeah, my dad doesn't have a stage (laughs) name, but he does play sax and he comes sits in with me sometimes.
0: So when did you start getting involved with music?
1: Uh, I started Suzuki Violin when I was really small, like I started when I was seven, and then I kind of just kept it up. I, I was really into music for, you know, for as, as long as I can remember.
0: And uh, did you, were you pretty good about practicing? Or is this something that your parents had to remind you to do?
1: I don't think you can find anybody who actually liked practicing violin uh, necessarily. Uh, but I did practice and uh, I, I kind of kept it up because I liked it.
0: And now uh, the violin is your uh, instrument of choice, although you have an interesting uh, way of performing. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But tell me about your violin. Uh, some violinists have uh, instruments that date from, from uh, you know, generations ago. Uh, tell us about your instrument.
1: I have this thing called, it's called a Stradivarius uh, copy. And basically, uh, what a lot of people don't understand is all this modern um, shape of the violin is actually pretty much just a copy of a Stradivarius because everybody just loved the sound of it. And I have just a, I have a normal instrument that I use, but I amplify it through various means.
0: Well, when uh, people think of classical music, uh, they get a certain perception in mind. But you really started experimenting with uh, making music on the violin. Tell us about um, how you started experimenting and what kind of uh, you know music are you drawn to?
1: Well, in high school and into college, I, I got into jazz violin, uh, swing violin, uh, and there's a huge tradition there. So I got into improvising, and I think from then I, I realized that the violin has a, has such potential to really to be something that you can be expressive in. And so I definitely went uh, through a phase of improvisation. And then I, I later started writing songs and started writing violin uh, into my songs.
2: Mm.
0: And I understand that you were involved with the gypsy jazz scene. Describe that.
1: Uh, gypsy jazz is this, this um, well, let's see, jazz started in America, really, but then got, got adopted into Europe around 30s. And uh, Django Reinhardt, who's this famous uh, gypsy jazz guitarist, uh, and Stephane Grappelli were in Paris and ha- created this style of um, kind of eloquent swing jazz that um, that's really po- that's still pretty popular today. And it's a, it's just a fun way to to play violin. It's a it's a way it's 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 easy to get into to improvise. Um, and so it's fun. It's like it's for it's for everybody. It's not too heady or mm-hmm. cerebral like modern jazz.
0: How did your uh, parents respond uh, to you as you uh, were making music and being drawn more into being a violinist?
1: Well, they already, they always knew I l- I loved music. Of course, I went to engineering school first, but um, and and I'm sure as most Asian parents would be disappointed in their kids going into the arts. I think they knew that I love music so much that they I, I, I got their blessing pretty early on.
0: <laughs> I hear you. My parents are from India, so they weren't too pleased when I wanted to become a journalist, <laughs> but they got over that
2: <laughs> eventually. <laughs> okay.
0: But let's talk about your solo work as Kishi Bashi. I understand at one point you were playing with of Montreal, but uh, in the in most recent years, uh, tell us about uh, the work that you're doing. And really, you know, you are the band, uh, your violin, as well as uh, some of the looping that you do. Describe that to our listeners.
1: Well, when I, was, uh, when I was touring with Of Montreal and actually playing on some albums, I got pushed to be very experimental as much as possible. And I think what I didn't realize is that my violin as my main instrument was, had all these untapped like sounds that I, was, that I had access to um, via looping and all these kind of things. And I think in a need to become a solo artist, I really pushed myself to create a, a unique sound that would help me stick out. And I think that's, that shaped the sound, was the beginning really of Kichibachi.
0: If you've heard Kishibashi's earlier music, it sounds like he has a full ensemble playing with him. But often, he's creating those layers of sound himself, like this live performance of his song, Manchester, from his first album, 151A. This performance was in 2016 for NPR's All Songs Considered. Kishibashi, tell us what we heard there.
1: <laughs> um, that was a live recording that you guys found somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a little scratchy, but uh, basically, what I'm doing is I'm playing one. Uh, I'm playing over, over and over myself, and then I, at a at a press of a button, I'm double speeding it to turn it into this kind of like uh, f- crazy frenetic sound that that actually is kind of. Um, uh exciting to me and that's that's how I usually write the songs and I'll start singing over it
3: me the last phase. I didn't even look I think I locked it in agains road enough Cuz everybody likes to read a novel It started with the word and it started pretty well about a rare and fragile bird that I couldn't even on
0: the team. This technique is called live looping. So, at a kishibashi performance, you'll see him playing his violin. In front of him, he has an array of looping pedals. He's able to press buttons using his feet to record and then play back the music while creating and looping additional layers. Some of the buttons enable him to manipulate the sound, so when he presses a button for double speed, the pitch jumps higher, like in the song Manchester. This all comes together, allowing him to create a full orchestral sound.
1: It's, it's kind of a, a stage eth, um, performance aesthetic in that, like, look, I'm just one guy up here just doing all this by myself. And I, and I, I think it kind of helps the audience. Um, it adds a, a dimension to the audience in that it's a human feat, you know, to be making these large sounds through one instrument.
0: video of this song being performed on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpithanshul. I'm talking with multi-instrumentalist and singer Kishibashi, who's in Connecticut tonight for a performance at Norwalk's Wall Street Theater. He's got a new album. I asked him to explain the title.
1: Omoyari well, is a Japanese word. It's about um, having compassion or consideration for another person, uh, like even a stranger. So it's the kind of thing that if you have, uh, if you keep this uh, close to your heart. It's, it's a way to kind of help society be better or t- to help people in need.
0: In this album, Kishibashi performs with other instrumentalists and also brings in his looping style from his solo work. Before the album, Kishibashi started crowdfunding for a documentary film also titled Omoyari. That film looks at the struggles endured by Japanese Americans when they were rounded up and sent to internment camps during World War II. Now, no members of Kishibashi's family were incarcerated during this time. He says the album came together during the process of filming this documentary.
1: The film kind of encompasses uh, writing songs as I traveled America and the world, uh, first through internment camps and uh, various uh, sites that concern, I guess, uh, minority identity here in America. It's really an effort to kind of figure out how American history has been taught and how we can challenge it.
0: Just a couple months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order in February of 1942, which allowed the military to round up Japanese Americans, from children to the elderly, and send them to camps in remote locations in the western part of the United States, states like Wyoming and Utah. Two-thirds of the people interned were American citizens. I asked Kishibashi where he started his journey learning about this history.
1: Well, uh, I started with a West Coast trip. I actually joined a bunch of Brown University grad students and uh, did a West Coast trip of all the internment camps there. And I think um, what it kind of taught me was that it's difficult to to kind of see it just names and dates. Um, it, it's it's really important to kind of go back and, and really empathize with what kind of people they were and how human they are and how um, how we're actually very close and related to how they would have reacted and how they would have, you know, uh, felt that kind of discrimination. And um, I think it's, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it started. And, and it's really evolved into this larger piece about how, what it is to be a modern citizen.
0: Mm. Describe uh, what that was like for you as someone of Japanese heritage.
1: Yeah, so my parents are actually uh, post-war immigrants, so they weren't incarcerated. But um, it's it's basically the idea that this is like, this could be me. You know, if if it was in a modern context and in a contemporary way, it's also the kind of othering that was happening back then is is happening now, and it's it's very dangerous to to otherize people and to be very tribal. To think of protecting only yourself is something that's extremely dangerous, and uh, it's very easy to fall into that that mm-hmm. fear.
0: Uh, tell us about some of the songs on this album. Let's start with F. Delano. F
1: Uh, F. knows about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was an interesting character because he was a hero to an entire generation of Americans. You know, he brought America out of the Great Depression. He created all these social programs that we still depend on and, you know, the Allied victory. And I think, um, but for uh, an entire civilian um, ethnic Japanese population, he was the, the leader who failed to protect them. And they consequently got incarcerated because of him. He signed the order
3: as will no one should live it wasn't our home and in the winter our sentence was stiff we froze to the bone
1: and i think um it's interesting to me because you know history's complicated
3: History to was
1: he right it's like he could be a uh, hero's and villains you know those are those are easy uh, ideas for children, but I think as adults, you know, we need to look at how nuanced history is.
0: That's interesting because, uh, as you know, uh, now there are certain uh, towns... Uh, in campuses that are uh, trying to reconcile figures from uh, the Civil War and whether there should be monuments. And, you know, we, it's easier to vilify, uh, you know, generals like Robert E. Lee or uh, former presidents like Andrew Jackson. But FDR, primarily, uh, people see him in a, in a good light unless, as you mentioned, you have Japanese heritage and you think about uh, his role in, in, in um, sending Japanese Americans uh, to internment camps
1: yeah, I mean, his role was really he he succumbed to media hysteria and prejudice. And so he failed as a, as a leader in that aspect, you know, and it, it was a mistake. Um, you know, I live in the South, and I think Confederate statues are they're all they're all around us, you know, and it's it's an interesting thing because it's like, do you want to hide these characters or do you want to talk about what they were and what it meant in that context? And I think I think the most important thing about all these things is to keep talking so that we understand and we're grateful for how much better it is now and how much better it can be.
0: Uh, When you were also talking uh, with people who had uh, a connection to the internment camps, uh, again, uh, this is something that uh, your uh, parents and grandparents did not experience, but you set out to uh, do uh, research and speak to survivors. What did they tell you?
1: Um, Well, it's interesting. If they're about 80 years old and Mm -hmm. still talking about it, um, they're actually children in the camps. And it's interesting because they actually had a great time in the camps because they're just hanging out with their buddies and their parents. They don't have to listen to their parents because they're locked up, you know? So, um, and if they're in their nineties, they were adults. If, if they were an adult back then, it was really humiliating because it's their, their home, you know, the, their leadership of the country that they called their home failed them, you know, and locked them up. So it's, it's kind of interesting to, to understand that a lot of these people were very, very young. And, um, they were also mostly, the people who, who really brought up this issue were actually um, born in America, as opposed to like the entire, there's a whole population that was actually very Japanese and really caught between the two countries. And I think it's a biculturalness that really, that really forced them to be, remain silent. That's Kichi Bashi,
0: a multi-instrumentalist and singer. Coming up, we talk more about his latest album and hear some of the songs. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel.
3: Faithless and mystic faint as can be Many rabbits Floated fast Landed his possible On the shore Many others Failed before Waiting With summer bare Eyes to the sea Fingers on her violin, playing for butterflies And bees and in A little shaky
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with multi-instrumentalist and singer Kishibashi, who's in Connecticut tonight for a concert in Norwalk. Earlier, I asked him about the inspiration behind his latest album, Omoyari, which focuses on the way Japanese-Americans were treated during World War II. As part of his creative process and research, Kishibashi visited the internment camps where Japanese-Americans were incarcerated. One of the songs on his album is called Theme from Jerome, which is based off his visit to the Jerome Moore Relocation Center in Arkansas.
1: Yeah, there are two in Arkansas, and this is one that I visited and I actually wrote that song or the melody when I was there. The song's kind of about assimilation and the loss of language. The impossible situation that an immigrant might be forced with to make a better life for their children by having them only speak English and not their native tongue, or being forced to suppress that culture, which could be the case for a lot of vulnerable minorities in this country today.
3: We fight the war.
0: How often are you using Japanese in your lyrics, Kishibashi?
1: I used to sneak it in just as a musical instrument. But I think now that I'm a little bit more comfortable uh, with my identity, I'm, I'm actually straight up singing in Japanese.
3: Mm.
0: That theme of assimilation, you know, it's not uncommon for uh, some children of immigrants to either be, uh, there's parts of their parents' culture, grandparents' culture that they might be embarrassed about, or maybe being hesitant of speaking uh, their parents' language. Um, is that something that that you um, also struggled with growing up?
1: Yeah, it's kind of about being a minority in this country. And it's, it's difficult to explain if you're not, um, but it's, it's just always being somewhat insecure about some aspect of your life and i think um when i was growing up you know there's asian slurs sure um and but i haven't heard one in a couple decades against myself so i feel like it's getting better for asians uh east asians or some Mm -hmm. of us you know in japan there's a lot to be proud of, you know, from being from Japan because there's a lot of manga and the food, everybody eats sushi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Japan's on the bucket list of everybody here. So it's it's not that embarrassing to be from Japan, but you know, there's other countries where um, where children face uh, you know, uh, discrimination all the time because they're from there. And it's 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 a very uh, it's a parallel that I see a direct connection to.
3: Well she sing this melody to her beloved sons, forgotten words from Japan.
0: Kishibashi also brings up memory. Not only how we remember the events happening around us, but also our personal experiences. How we remember our loved ones, like in his song Marigolds.
1: It's about memory. Um, Marigolds is, of course, the, uh, the flower that they use in uh, Day of the Dead in Mexico. And I think um, the, uh, the idea is that the memory of people really disappear when you, when you, when you forget about them. And I think to, to not remember where you're from or where your relatives are, your ancestors, and the sacrifice they made for you is something that um, it should, should always be honored. And that's, it's, that's, part, that's also the part about remembering history. Mm-hmm.
3: When your heart was safe to hold, when you were safe.
0: heard, Kishibashi created this album by drawing on history. But we couldn't just talk about the past, given the rhetoric in our country today. Before he became president, one of the proposals Donald Trump campaigned on was a Muslim ban, or, quote, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Here's Donald Trump talking by phone with George Stephanopoulos on ABC's Good Morning America back in 2015.
3: You're increasingly being compared to Hitler. Does that give you any pause at all? No, because what I'm doing is no different than what FDR, FDR's solution for Germans, Italians, Japanese, you know, many years So you're ago, for internment a, a camps? Reviled. This is a president who was highly respected by all. He did the same thing.
0: After he became president, Trump would go on to issue an executive order that prohibited travelers from entering the U.S. if they came from certain Muslim-majority countries, I asked Kishibashi how contemporary rhetoric and policy influenced his album's focus.
1: Yeah, the, the reason why I started this project was because of the kind of um, Islamophobia and the anti-immigration rhetoric that was coming out of the administration. Um, ultimately, there was a direct parallel to me to Executive Order 9066, uh, which happened, had, had happened 76 years before. History, for me in this case, is such an important lesson, especially when it concerns lives today and people suffering. And I think to not understand the uh, the legacy of that uh, mistake, what really led to being so callous and um, not compassionate really to minorities or to immigrants. And I think the main goal for my movie and for this this uh, this album is really to to kind of encourage people to really step forward and uh, think about empathy and having compassion towards people they don't understand.
0: A lot of the album Omoyari deals with somber themes, but when you're listening to the songs, you can't help but be drawn in because of the beautiful way Kishibashi sings, like in this song, Summer of 42.
1: Yeah, summer so 42 is is a fantasy about falling in love in a camp and then uh, going off to war the of the and then ultimately coming back and and then she's not there. I and I think um, the idea with history in general, or writing, or making art, or writing songs about, it, is that. You can't just go and look at the dates it's, um, and, the, and the facts. It's about finding, creating a story so that people can actually put themselves in that situation. And I think falling in and out of love and desiring is, is something that is universal.
0: In 2019, why is it relevant to focus on this part of our history? What do you want uh, people to think about when they're listening to your album?
1: I want people to be especially uh, grateful for how how much better society has become and also how constantly better we are always becoming and trying to become. And I think you know, World War II was, was a terrible time for almost everybody. And I think uh, to, to be able to survive that and to to create again and to to become a new society and to always become better. It's something that uh, actually really uh, I I find inspiring personally. So I think that's, that's kind of what I've injected into this album.
0: I understand you have a family, a daughter. Uh, What message do you send to her about the future and uh, again, remembering history, but also uh, moving forward and treating everyone with respect?
1: Uh, yeah, with my daughter. I have a 13-year-old. And I'm actually, you know, I'm I'm actually very optimistic about the future because, you know, I, I see her generation as being more empathetic and more compassionate than mine, you know, was in the past. And I think when we're headed in that direction, it gives me a lot of hope to see the next, um, next wave of citizens being uh, people who can be more inclusive, more supportive of diversity. And that's something... I think the country's really changing right now, and it's something that uh, can be fearful, but it can also be very exciting.
0: I've been speaking with Kishibashi, a multi-instrumentalist and singer uh, from the studios at WUGA in Athens, Georgia. His newest album is Omoyari. Kishibashi, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: I on the
0: More information about Kishibashi's performance tonight in Connecticut is at wmpr.org slash I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear about a musical project in Connecticut that aims to bring people together. That's after the
3: break. When she
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Uh, coming up on Monday, Election Day is also coming up. That's Tuesday, November 5th. On the next Where We Live, we check in with reporters and analysts around the state about the races happening in Connecticut cities and towns. The big question is, who will turn out to vote and why? We want to hear from you. That show on Monday. Now, we're continuing our focus on music. Joining me now are two Connecticut musicians to tell us about their choral project. First, Sarah Cuffold, Artistic Director of the Voices of Conservative. Choir and the Consonare Choral Community in Eastern Connecticut. Sarah, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Also with us is Liz Bologna, a professional singer, and she's also a music and art advocate. We like uh, people like you, uh, Liz. She's the executive director of the Women Composers Festival of Hartford and also a member of Voices of Consenity. Uh, Liz, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much, Lucy. I wanted to start with Sarah. We actually uh, met you at our uh, Where We Live Coffee Break in, in Willimantic, and we learned about your choral community. I described you also as the artistic director of Voices of Kinsinity. So tell us about uh, this community that you've helped uh, create.
4: Absolutely. Um, I really love that music has an opportunity to bring people together. And I thought one way that we could do that is to build community in our own community. And so we created a three choirs that have a chance to meet the community in different ways. So we have a women's chorus that's open to all self-identified women, and it has a tandem children's chorus, and that works in the same building, the same time, so that women have an opportunity to engage in the choral singing and they can have their child also engage at the same time. It adds a little bit more accessibility. And <laughs> flexibility. <laughs> Absolutely. We have to be flexible yes. as... as um, As uh, musicians, absolutely. And then we have a component that meets with the community by bringing really artfully created choral music that they can listen, engage, and learn a little bit more about choral music in a way that's accessible, not just financially, but we're also working on making it accessible socially and in
0: other ways. Uh, Talk more about when uh, you were thinking about trying to uh, bring people together. Just personally, you know, what were some of the catalysts for you to think about? You know, maybe it would make sense to have this uh, community chorus of women, uh, you know, bonding and having time for themselves. Well, it actually
4: started about 10 years ago when we moved to Connecticut. And I was a mother of three very, very young children. And... We didn't have any family or any friends that lived here. And it was really hard. And I I knew I wasn't going to be working with such young children um, for a couple of months. And I thought, I just want to get out and sing. And so I had called a couple local choirs, and not one of them had space for a female singer. And (laughs) I just remember feeling a little despondent. And so um, fast forward 10 years when I was in a place where—actually, it wasn't quite 10. It was about eight years ago— and I um, wanted to do something for women after the 2016 election. I wanted a way to empower women and give women a place to share their voice and their, um, their worries, their concerns, and just be submersed in a place that was supportive. Mm. And I thought, oh, a woman's choir is the perfect place for that. And any woman who calls asks if there's a space, I'm going to say, yes, there is. Suppose <laughs> <laughs> so, there's not a spot for you.
0: <laughs> and one of the women uh, in your community is Liz Bologna, again, who's a professional singer and a member of Voices of Kinsinity. Uh, so tell us about uh, you know what brought you to uh, this, uh, this group and a little bit more about some of your uh, members.
5: So I actually, uh, I knew about the choir because I had known about Sarah. She had sung with a group that I also had worked with and some of the singers in the group uh, as it formed I knew as well and so you know I, I go to my friends concerts basically and I heard them and I, I heard what they were programming and I went up to Sarah afterwards and I said I don't know that we actually know each other but we sort of have traveled in the same circles and I really want to be a part of this uh, it was a great sound and I liked what she was programming and I just I forced my way in a little bit um, <laughs> you were really, welcomed <laughs> really appropriately uh, but I, I you know it was something I'm I'm at the point now in, in my own personal career where I get to be a little more particular about the gigs that I take. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of great groups who do a lot of great things with Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, and they're all beautiful, and they they have wonderful artistic merit, but I'm not that interested uh, in necessarily in those dead white men anymore. Uh, I still love them. I'm happy to sing them, but I, I want something more, mm-hmm. more interesting uh, and more engaging and more relevant right mm-hmm. now. And so... I, I glommed on to Voices mm-hmm. of Consinity, and uh, Sarah's been really welcoming in, in that, you know, I get to make some suggestions without, you know, stepping on anybody's toes, and I can say, here's a composer I like, maybe we can look mm-hmm. at them, here's, you know, a piece that I've done before, maybe we can revisit it. Um, so it's just a chance to to be a little more hands-on as a singer, which mm-hmm. is great.
0: Uh, you mentioned, again, Voices of Consinity, so that is a 12 12- voice chamber ensemble, and there are also men in this particular group. Yes. Uh, So um, uh, talking a little bit more about what you just brought up, uh, this idea of of not uh, just singing what we think of as traditional or expected, uh, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, um, last weekend, Voices of Continuity had a concert. Uh, Tell us about, the title was Old, New, Borrowed, and long overdue, an interactive tour of choral music by exploring the footnotes. So tell us more about that idea, and who did you uh, actually sing?
4: Well, the idea came to me as um, wanting to explore choral music and the inclusion that is available and not quite available in the programming. You know, Liz said something about a lot of um, white European music being... Mm -hmm programmed in our state, and that is a lot of the, the concerts that I sing in, actually, and hear about. And so I thought, well, what if we bring up this idea of why, historically, has it been that way? And some people have been relegated to the footnotes, mm-hmm. and why were they there? And it isn't so much a performance that <clears throat> talks about, or just showcasing these people. I want it to compel people to think about why were these people relegated to the footnotes and how come we don't hear them performed in our state? Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much of giving them just a chance. It was showing people that this is an issue. This is something that we need to consider. We talk a lot about um, appealing to a broader audience as choral musicians and classical musicians. And we can't do that if people don't know that they're going to be able to see themselves reflected in the music that's being presented.
0: So let's hear one of the uh, composers that you profile and perform. Uh, This is a composer from the 1500s. Let's hear a little bit of it. So, Sarah, tell us about this composer. Who was she? It was Maddalena Casulana, and she is
4: from the 1500s, 1600s. And um, what's really interesting about this piece is it's a madrigal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of madrigals composed at that time really kind of talk about that desire, passion between a man and a woman, and they try to infuse sort of the act in the music. Mm And um you can hear that on a lot of madrigals by her male counterpoints. Uh, um sorry, counterparts. <laughs> counterpoints is a musical term anyway. <laughs> <That's fair>. um, <laughs> but what's interesting about this particular madrigal is that she doesn't put any sort of climax in this piece. And it seems that she's sort of showing the inequality mm-hmm. that's between a man and a woman, and it seems like they're fighting back and forth. And then it slowly just resolves to an end of where perhaps they've come into agreement Mm -hmm. as opposed to one has um, more um, satisfaction than the other. Mm -hmm. And so it really kind of is, is infused with equality even back then. And what's great about her is that she's one of the first composers that sort of considered herself a professional composer. One of the first female composers to to say that, and that's kind of exciting. And you don't hear about her or learn about her at all in in the music history in school.
0: Uh, uh, Liz Bologna, uh, also with us, a member of Voices of Consinity.
5: Uh In your career, is that true? When was the first time that you heard her music? Oh my gosh, uh, I for Casalana, it's probably in the last year. To be honest, mm-hmm. I I was woefully uh uninformed when it came to women composers and what's really sad to me is that I didn't even think about it um you know I'm I'm used to the classical western canon and you go through music history and you hear about the same you know Handel and Haydn and all these great men um and you know you hear about Hildegard because she's sort of known as the first woman composer Um, She's just sort of sprinkled in a little bit, but there was so much that I was missing, and there's so much that I'm still missing that I really, I like that Sarah's able to pull out all these different composers that I've never heard before, and yes, I feel slightly a little bit of shame for not knowing them, but... You know, it's more exciting that now I can then bring them to the audience and to other audiences and say, hey, there's this person. She's been left out. Let's do more for her.
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to Where We Live as we talk about uh, this effort uh, in uh, Connecticut, uh, Consonare Consenar- Consa- Choral yes. Community. I don't <laughs> want to mess that up. Uh, in eastern Connecticut, Sarah Cawfold with us, the artistic director, and Liz Bologna, who's a professional singer, uh, a member of Voices of Consenity, uh, one of uh, – these, I guess branches of the work that you're doing, uh, yes. Sarah. So when people heard that song performed, how did the audience react? I'm not quite sure.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, we had given a really wonderful sort of preface to all of our songs just to kind of, again, build that accessibility. We, d- we wanted the information provided to the audience to be something that they could attach themselves to, as opposed to something that would have been put in a musicology textbook. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think people were able to listen to it a little bit more critically. Mm -hmm. And it sounds um, very similar to Renaissance music that they would know. And so it's like, why don't we know about Casulana or any of the other female composers
0: that composed at that time? Mm. Uh, Liz, as you're singing, uh, do you take note
5: of, of how people are responding in the audience? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Um, I try not to think too much about what I'm getting back from the audience because a lot of times, you know, choral music is not really an an interactive kind of thing. That people come to a concert and there's that fourth wall. They sort of, you know, the performers are up there on a platform. I'm here in the audience. There's a disconnect. But when you do something, you know, and Kazulana is a little inaccessible still cuz it's like oh that's that old style like okay whatever but when we do more contemporary composers like um Esmail or Dale Trumbor you know you have a chance to like it's more exciting for the audience that they, there's this living component to mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. that, like, it's living and breathing in front of you. And I'm going to, particularly for Tarakita, I'm going to smile all the way through that one because it's just a lot of fun. Like, okay. that one you get a lot of audience reaction from. That's a good transition
0: because we wanted to talk about some of the contemporary composers uh, that um, you are incorporating uh, in your concerts. Uh, you mentioned uh, Rina Esmael. Uh, let's hear uh, this particular song. <laughs> So that's Tara Kita, Sarah. Am I saying that correctly? You absolutely are. That's a very—it's a very interesting uh, song. So tell us about why you chose this. Well,
4: one of the main reasons was I have been collecting um, new composers sort of in a database. When I come across them um, through Facebook or pretty much anywhere, I write them down. And I just sort of keep them there because I want their music to be included and to give it life. Um, And so Rena Esmail was one of those composers. Someone had said, um, a friend from Yale had posted, you need to know this composer. And I said okay, and I'm going to know this composer. Tell us about her. Well, um, she is a composer that works between the worlds of um, Indian and Western classical music and tries to bring people together in the creation of equitable musical spaces. And I thought this was really interesting. And so I started listening to her music. And what took me to this song is that she takes um, tabla, which is a North Indian drumming tradition. And what it is is that each drumming sort of percussion has a a syllable attached to it. And so these syllables are sort of connected into sentences. And that's kind of what this song is. Mm. It's all of these syllables connected, and it goes in between different voices. So there's different voices doing different drumming sentences. And it's just kind of exciting and interesting and vibrant and not something at a usual classical concert, (laughs) yet... That was the one who um, my husband, who is not a musician, he went, that one's my favorite. (laughs) He's like, I loved it. And I think part of it is that it gave us a chance to kind of sing together and interact as singers because all the different parts are coming up. And Mm -hmm. it was just kind of a, Mm -hmm. a neat song.
0: Uh, you know, Liz Bologna, you mentioned earlier that when people go to concerts, often it's not interactive. So tell us more about when you when you performed at this particular concert, I'd ask you how audience reacted. But also a part of one of your goals is maybe to take that wall down so that people feel more comfortable uh, coming to your performances and being part of that experience.
5: Absolutely. So one thing that we've done with this concert that Sarah instituted was that each of the singers was going to introduce one of the given pieces, which as singers, uh, we don't always love, to be honest. There's like, yes, we're (laughs) performers and I'm happy to sing for you and then to like speak in front of a group of people is like a whole other thing. But it's really nice because it does show like, hi, we are human, actual breathing people in front of you that are doing this live and in the moment. The other thing that I like is that, you know, it taught me about the piece and then I also get the chance to say, here is why it's great. I got to introduce um, Melissa Dunphy's O'Oriens and – you know, I know Melissa Dunfree from Twitter, so it was sort of cool to be like, oh, my gosh, here's this piece from this really interesting person. And it really it gives a chance for the audience to to take a moment that is not them like concentrating on the music and feeling like they have to get this thing out of it. I can say, here's this piece and here's something to hang on to or something you might not know about mm-hmm. it that you might find as the piece progresses. So you have this thing that you can give the audience that they can look for during the performance rather than sort of sitting there being like, okay, that happened. Mm. Well, you've piqued our
0: listeners' interest. We got a tweet from a listener who says uh, she's very much enjoying this conversation. She's embarrassed to say that she didn't realize there were female composers so early on in history. Yes. And so uh, going on to write, I assume they weren't allowed to compose because of social norms. Thank you for bringing this to my attention, Wonderful. yeah i mentioned me. I mentioned this uh performance. you're going to be doing it again, Voices of Consenity, the old new borrowed and long overdue Sarah, what can you tell us about that performance coming up? Absolutely.
4: It's going to be in Hebron, Connecticut, so we're a little bit south um west of where we are um based out of which is in stores Connecticut, and it will be at St Peter's Church in Hebron on november twenty second Friday at seven p m And the part of the concert that I'm really enjoying exploring, this is like an interactive component, which is a complete experiment. We're asking the audience to sort of vote on where they think this music is categorized, whether Mm. they think it's new, old, borrowed, or long overdue. And the idea behind that is to get the audience to interact and think critically about this music. And what is it about it that would put it into the long overdue category. Mm. And um, it was really interesting. We had a number of people um, fill out the survey at the last concert, and it was interesting to see their responses. But the thing that I loved the most is that they had an opportunity to tell us through the app what they liked most about this performance. And it was really interesting to see that variety Mm. was what people we're excited about. Well,
0: we'll have more information about that upcoming performance on our website, wmpr.org uh, slash where we live. Uh, Liz Bologna, I mentioned you're also executive director of the Women's Composers Festival of Hartford. That's going to be coming up this spring. I'd love to have you back to talk about that with us. Yeah, I'd love to be here. Thank you. I love uh, speaking with you, Liz Bologna, again, also a member of Voices of Consenity, and Sarah Koffel. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, today's show, expertly produced by Carmen Baskoff, especially the first part of our show with our interview with Kishi Bashi. I'm Lucy nalpith Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.